Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Bruno Massage, a Portuguese politician and author about Europe, Eurasia, power, Russia, China and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of UkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Bruno Massage is a former Secretary of State for European Affairs in Portugal and author of numerous best-selling books. We spoke in Lviv, a city in western Ukraine, at the Lviv Book Forum two days before Russia's massive round of missile strikes on Ukrainian cities in October. The series Thinking in Dark Times aims to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, let's start. Bruno Massage, thanks so much for joining this podcast. It's a pleasure, Vladimir. You are uh, traveling to Ukraine quite a lot. I remember you, you came to Ukraine just days before this invasion. Why are you coming so often? Try to understand uh, what is happening. What is happening is very important. Someone who wants to understand the contemporary world uh, has to be interested in Ukraine. And I've always believed that comes through in all my books that you cannot understand things by, by reading books um, or by talking to people on Zoom. So I make an effort to come here. Not always possible. Uh, I'd like to come more often, actually. And yes, I was here on February 21st, and I left with my wife because it was very clear to me what would happen. And back then I thought it would be very difficult to leave uh, after the invasion. Now you you travel to places which are dangerous. Now we're sitting in Lviv, which I think is a now wonderful place. Of course, there can be missile strikes, but it was long ago that uh, Russians tried to reach Lviv. In Kyiv, it's also relatively safe, but you went for Kharkiv, for example, which is shelled every day and night. Uh, when you talk to people in Kharkiv, what is your perception? I will tell you mine, because I also go often to Kharkiv. These people are incredible in their bravery, incredible in their, in their strong character. People who stay in the city despite the shelling, people who create culture despite these constant threats to their lives. What is your impression? Yes, so I wanted to go to Kharkiv. Uh, I wasn't interested in going to Bakhmut, let us say. I'm not a war reporter. Uh, but a large city like Kharkiv with, with the cultural history and how it is dealing with um, the war just a few miles away, back when I was there, maybe 20 miles away, Uh, I wanted to see that, and of course it was the most marked experience of my travels in Ukraine, because as you say, even in Kiev, one forgets about the war. In Kharkiv, it's not possible. I, I talk about in one of my texts that the sense is almost of entering a parallel reality, or as the train enters, of entering a cave and then coming back. It also happened by coincidence that the weather was terrible in Kharkiv, and then when I got to Pultava, uh, There was a beautiful sunlight like today. So the sense was very vivid to me. And I'm interested when I travel also in these more personal uh, reactions to the environment. 
uh, and it was um, a very vivid impression of entering uh, a different world where obviously nothing is normal. Uh, waking up, uh, I arrived uh, uh, very tired and went to take a nap in one of the few hotels that were open. Uh, woke up, walked outside, uh, and the first impression is, of course, all the glasses are broken, uh, and no, there's no hurry to fix them because they could be broken again tomorrow. Uh, and then talking to people in the city and, and realizing the sort of twilight world that Kharkiv has become, uh, on the one hand, people trying to continue with their lives, but on the other, nothing is normal. Nothing is normal, but at the same time, uh, they have rock concerts in the metro, yes. they, ha they have theater performances, Recently, they had a fantastic festival, uh, and uh, people are really cultural, people from cultural sphere, they're volunteering, everybody's volunteering to help to the front line or to help the civilians. So I'm really thinking that Kharkiv is now one of these hearts of Ukraine. Do you have this impression? Yes, um, a lot of things happening there with greater intensity, and of course, questions about the future of Ukraine as well. Uh, political. It's interesting to see what is happening both with, with the mayor uh, and the governor um, and how they they symbolize a difference that is happening. Also happened, interestingly, when I was there, that um, a local artist was, was removing the name of um, Pushkin Street, one of the... I think it was Gamlet, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. Uh, and painting over uh, British streets, I then found out, doing a little bit of research, that it used to be called German Street back when there was a German community in some parts of Ukraine before Second World War. So this is a symbol of how nothing stays for long the same in Kharkiv. And the changes are seismic. Um, they have to do about uh, reconfigurations of culture and politics. So that, that was also a, a vivid impression there. Hamlet is a very interesting artist. And uh, Hamlet is actually his real name. And... Uh, uh, we, when we went last time, uh, we talked to him, we, we went into his apartment. One of the inscriptions, the graffiti he makes, which I think for me is kind of a very important, it's called Chas Chuyanas, Time Hears Us. Mm -hmm. Do you have the impression that time or history hears Ukrainians? I, I think so, and in, in, in many different ways. So I, I guess the first meaning of that is what is happening here will be known, won't be forgotten. But there's also a sense that uh, history is, is somehow being made. This is what I'd like to, to write a bit more about, uh, because uh, obviously uh, it's, it's not just a war, it's also a political event. Uh, I tweeted yesterday, um, tweets are often beginning of essays, but I tweeted yesterday that um, the revolutionary tradition is very powerful in Ukraine, is being rekindled now. And the way it's being rekindled and the way it has a global aspirations is... Notice how Zelensky many times uh, points out that something is fundamentally wrong with the world order. Because if the world order was working as it should, then a war like this could not happen. And, and this, I think, symbolizes what this war could become beginning for revolutionary change at the global level. That could be a second meaning of the sentence, uh, which I, I'm not sure Hamlet has in, in mind, but uh, the, the beauty of, of the sentence, I saw it uh, painted uh, in a collapsed building. Exactly, uh, in a uh, collapsed cafe. Collapsed cafe. Uh, and it, it also struck me, and I was thinking about it for, for a day or two, or what it could mean. Yeah.
One year thinking about this war when you're asked by uh, international journalists to describe it, how, you, how do you describe it? Seems to me to be uh, happening at two levels. And uh, we're not faithful to events if we stick to only one level. If you think it is only a war between the West and Russia, you're missing a big part of it. And in fact, you are, uh, there's a certain perversity in looking at it that way. Uh, and of course, obliterates uh, the Ukraine struggle and suffering. On the other hand, I also think that if you regard it just as a war between Ukraine and, and Russia, you also miss that there's something else going on. So I think there's uh, at, at, the, at the higher level, let us call it a higher level of the global order, um, there's an attempt by Russia to change the rules. Uh, and then what does that mean? Well, the rules for, for uh, Russia, the rules that Russia would prefer would be a world where great powers can expand according to their passionality and smaller powers are, are conquered. Uh, so Russia is doing two things at the same time. Change the global order in a direction that, that it feels is more congenial, where Russia can be Russia. And at the same time, is already behaving as, as, as that kind of uh, authentic Russia. Uh, and the way it behaves that way is by regaining control over Ukraine and, and regaining control over its uh, imperial tradition. Uh, I think... Um, I always seem to me, listening to Putin's speeches uh, over the past two or three years, that uh, his main um, his main source of, of anxiety that explains the the war is is this sense that Russia is not allowed to be Russia, and by extension, if Russia is not allowed to be Russia, then the Russian president is not allowed to be the Russian president. We can ask whether the Russian president, being authentic, in fact, turns into something else than a president. But I think that's it. That's a sense that uh, he, he keeps talking about how everything is fake. And what he means is, under this system, Russia cannot be Russia. But obviously what many people around the world would be asking is, do, do we want that authentic Russia? Um, we don't. Uh, and perhaps even Russians don't want it. But it's that sense of not being able to be yourself that seems to animate uh, those people in the Kremlin. You wrote The Dawn of Eurasia. A wonderful book when you when you show the the, the changes ge geopolitical changes of of today's world, but at the same time Eurasia is a very important concept of of Russian ideology. Uh, all those Eurasianists coming from 1920s, people like Nik uh, Prince Trubetskoy, people like Sovchinsky, Savitsky. And uh, I think at that time, in the 1920s, their major, idea, their major idea was twofold. First, Russia is a separate civilization, contrary to European one. And second, you can actually combine uh, Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. They are not antagonistic. And in 1920s, it was a, a new thought. And I think Stalin actually uh, implemented it, right? So today's neo-Eurasianists like Dugin or whatever, they also revived this neoconservative and I would say even fascist worldview of the 1920s and 1930s. So uh, in which way thinking about Eurasia, we understand that, okay, everybody's talking like that Europe is not as strong as in the 19th century, 20th century, but in which sense thinking about Eurasia uh, can help us avoid this trap of Russian Eurasianism and this idea of alternative civilization or whatever. How can we think productively about Eurasia? Well, I'm not sure I disagree with uh, Trubskoy's idea and, and the 1920s Eurasianists that Russia is a different civilization. Um, I certainly disagree with that idea, very common in Western Europe, 
that Russia is one of us. And I think it's a noxious idea. Uh, for example, President Macron seems to be infatuated with this, uh, and it leads to this permanent attempt to extend special privileges to Russia that you would not extend to India or to Iran or to China because Russia is part of the family. And so even if they misbehave, we have to talk to them. We cannot isolate them because they are part of the European family. So between Macron's idea of Russia as part of the European family and Trudskoy's idea of, of Russia as a separate civilization, I think I, I, I prefer the latter. So on, on some of these things, and, and when I tweet about this, people recognize that I'm agreeing with them. Um, Dugin, I always thought very uninteresting and very difficult for me to, to read any of his works. He seems to me more of a religious mystic than a, than a philosopher. Never been very interested. He does quote me in a very recent article he wrote, and he calls my book a version of objective Eurasianism as opposed to his, which is normative. And that's not, I don't know if I should be flattered or offended and ask for the, the, the I article. I think you should be offended. But in any case, it does, it does uh, mark the distinction between uh, my book and his work. My book, I think it, it's correct that it's objective Eurasianism. Um, there's no uh, normative program there. There's simply the recognition that this border between Europe and Asia is collapsing. And that if we want to think rigorously about the world today, you have to think on a Eurasian scale, which is an idea that goes back to German thinkers in the 19th century and then to some extent to Mackinder and others. So it's actually not a, a Russian idea, this objective. Mackinder, Haushofer, this is, you know, all this classical geopolitics of right. the early 20th century. But I think fundamentally, as, as, as far as I can tell, even Mackinder, when he's interested in this, it's what is behind his interest is the end of European, the end of the European age, the end of European colonialism and the end of European exceptionalism. And once that disappears, the sources of European strength disappear, and McKinder can see it at the beginning of the 20th century, then we're going to be left with Eurasia. And I think we're already left with Eurasia. So we have a Russia that is not really part of Europe, as we just talked about. Then you've noticed, of course, maybe you'll ask me about it, how India and China have become an important part of this discussion about Russia and the war, really important part. Uh, and so our discussion is no longer about Europe and whether Russia is behaving as a European country or not. Our discussion is much larger about how the pieces of Eurasia are being reconfigured. The discussion about what will happen to Russia, will Russia become a Chinese satellite or a kind of Iran isolated from, from the rest of, of, the, of the supercontinent? Where is India going? Uh, and this war has been a very revealing and important moment in, in the Indian story. So all I, all I argue in that book, uh, at least the fundamental thesis, is that we need to think in Eurasian terms. But again, as an objective fact, uh, there's never in the book any suggestion that uh, uh, Europe, uh, Russia and China will find it easy to... To, to live together. In fact, the opposite. Uh, the book is also objective in the sense of recognizing that Eurasia is going to be a cauldron of conflict precisely because it is being uh, reunited after the centuries of European exceptionalism and reconfigured. And, and this, uh, all over the border zones of Eurasia, we're going to have conflict. So you, you, Ukraine is just one of them. 
But this worries me a lot because you mentioned this borderlands between Eurasia. You mean uh, in Ukrainian case, this is this basically the the eastern Ukraine, the Azov region, Black Sea region, uh, what we call Donbass. While I don't like this word, and if we look at history, that was a, a for example in early modern age, this was called the wild uh, wild field, Dike Pole where basically the Christian culture and Muslim cultures were, were fighting each other. And one of, the, uh, one of the metaphors that historians, Ukrainian historians were using recently was a metaphor of borderland, like Ukraine is a Europe's border uh, with this Eurasian steppe. So if this, the problem that worries me is that we actually come back to it very strangely come back to the basic fact of geography that in, in the territory around near Azov Sea or Black Sea or whatever, there's always a clash between, let's say, Europe and, let's say, Eurasia. And that means that it's, it's all repeating. It rhymes, but it's not exactly the same. So during the, the age of European empires and European exceptionalism, the question was how far east do the lights of European civilization reach? And at some point, they're going to become dimmer and dimmer until they disappear. And I guess uh, the Donbass could be part of this story, but also the Caucasus and also perhaps uh, some Russian cities in, in the Urals and, and so on, but also uh, even, even Syria, question about Turkey. But that is a discussion from 200 years ago. I think now uh, it is a different one. It's about uh, different blocs are being organized, one of them the European Union and the other... Russia, whatever form it takes, or perhaps a fusion of Russia and China in a kind of uh, informal Chinese empire. All that is, is open. And so the borderlands are no longer those uh, outer reaches of European civilization. Now, the borderline is very clearly between the Russian bloc and the European Union. And what is becoming clearer and clearer since 2013 is that Ukraine will be part of, of the European Union in some form. Uh, formally or informally, but now actually starting to look that it will be formally. Uh, and there is a rupture between Ukraine and Russia, complete, definitive, which now obviously uh, is apparent uh, uh, everywhere in everything, like yesterday with the Nobel Prize, uh, that people, uh, and I think I'm starting to understand uh, both the present moment and, and, and the present Ukrainian psychology, because as I saw the news, Instead of uh, finding it a good decision, I immediately recognized the problem uh, after a minute or a few seconds of seeing the news that uh, uh, where is this uh, tri-union of peoples coming from? And if you want to give a, a prize to Ukrainian civil society, well, let's join it with Czech civil society and Polish civil society that have been working together actually over the past year and give a prize to the three. But why are we giving a prize to, to the three civil societies? That, that's the problem of the optics of the Nobel uh, Peace Committee, which still sees it as a hidden empire. But uh, anyway, we are glad that uh, Ukrainian human rights activists, civil right. uh, Center for Civil Liberties, who are my very big, big friends, and, and that's very good that they have received it. That's also recognition, of course, for this work of human rights organizations. But, it's, but it is interesting that now there's this drive to look for every hidden symbol of, of this 
Russian-Ukrainian connection and try to break it. So I think when we talk about borderlands, now this is the borderland. It's the political line between Ukraine and, and Russia. When you uh, analyze Europe, uh, for example, in, in the dawn of Eurasia, I think you, you have a very interesting analysis of the European Union as a kind of a robotized, automized algorithm where it is basically believed that we should set up rules which will work automatically. On the one hand, it's perfect. It's the rule of law. But on the other hand, it excludes the capacity of human decision. And uh, it's probably um, one of the reasons of the current European uh, indecisiveness of some European countries, at least since 2014. Maybe this even paralysis. Yes. Do you agree? Yes. Uh, you know, that page in Dawn of Eurasia was supposed to be a kind of a note for a future book, and that hasn't happened yet. But I think it is a, a, a rich page. Um, there has a lot of stuff there, uh, promising stuff. Uh, and what is there? First, as you say, rule of law. But rule of law has changed its meaning. It used to be ruled by law or through law. But now it's become rule of law where law is actually the subject imposing the rule. These rules are the sovereign, and they work automatically, and we have to obey them. I saw this very clearly, as I, as I mentioned in the book, uh, when I was uh, in government and received a document from Brussels explaining how we're going to deal with the refugee problem. And the document was a huge formula that I transcribe in the book. Uh, and this is how we're going to deal with uh, the most human of problems, of a refugee problem, using an algorithm, a complex algorithm, to determine how many refugees go to each country. But all this seemed normal to people who have been socialized in the Brussels bubble. And we've seen now that being applied to everything. Uh, and what is the reason? I think it goes back, obviously, to the experience of totalitarianism and Nazism and the sense that human beings cannot be trusted to rule. And only rules can be trusted to rule. Only rules are objective, impartial, the same for everyone. Only rules are dispassionate. They don't have passions because we no longer trust human beings. They are, their passions are unreliable. So I think it goes back to the origins of the European Union as a, as a substitute, as an antithesis to, to Nazism. But it has become very problematic. As I say in the book as well, robots always have difficulty when they have to deal with the external environment. If you have a robot to work in this room, it's fine, but you take it to the grass outside, it can no longer operate. And the same for these EU algorithms. They work fine internally, but then we only have to deal with the unruly external environment, as we've seen refugees, uh, um, China, Russia, Ukraine. Then it, it, it essentially breaks down, actually. So on the one hand, on the one extreme, you have this uh, inhumane, the work of the rules. On the other hand, you have the so-called decisionism, right? And which easily goes to voluntarism. And this is what uh, something what fascism and Nazism were, were born out of, because especially fascism, when Mussolini was saying that, look, uh, you need a will of a person, right? So how to find a balance between them? Well, I don't think the struggle, is, the, the struggle is actually to find a balance because this rule of rules is so ingrained in the EU spirit that uh, every push you, you make uh, to move in the opposite direction is almost by definition safe. You're not going to end up with dictatorship in Brussels. So in my role as a public intellectual, in my tweets or articles, I'm always very comfortable pushing for 
things almost approaching decisionism. Because I think the balance is going to be reached by, by pushing very hard in that direction to try to break some of these uh, almost unconscious instincts uh, towards uh, automatic uh, uh, rule governing. But this is changing, uh, in my opinion, because when I look for uh, at Ursula von der Leyen or for uh, Joseph Borrell, I think they're completely different compared to previous EU bureaucrats. So do you think that the spirit of personality coming back even to Brussels, bureaucratized politics, uh, do you think it's, it's, it's there? People are waking up. You know, I'm not the only one who's aware of this problem. Almost everyone is. And, and they're trying to solve it. But so far, we don't have a very clear solution. And uh, even though von der Leyen has been, uh, in, at the level of language, uh, a breath of fresh air, you know, she will say things like, Russia must lose, Ukraine must win, which uh, are stirring. And you'd never see Macron or, or Schultz say the same. But in practice, um, most people I, I talk to in Brussels think that uh, the last few months have been disappointing compared to, for example, COVID. Uh, there's been some action on, on sanctions, um, but there's been almost complete disunity at the level of military support, which could have been collectivized and each, each country for itself and sometimes getting in the way of others and mutual criticism. Uh, at the level of the energy policy has been difficult too. So the progress has not been extraordinary. Uh, I think this crisis will continue, and I still believe there will be a geopolitical awakening. Uh, some of my colleagues were announcing geopolitical awakening during Brexit, during COVID, during the refugee crisis. I always thought it wasn't enough. This may well be enough, but it hasn't been yet. Uh, but things are, are still in the first stage. Um, I think we're still in the middle of it, and in some respects it will get worse. But I always thought that uh, this change of, of mindset and of institutions, they will have to change too, would come as a result of a large geopolitical crisis, and I think this is it. Do you think that such concepts which Europe despises, like geopolitics mm. or power or what the French call puissance, should come back to the European vocabulary? Yes, they have to come back. Um, I don't know if in this podcast I can refer to your panel this morning at a, at a conference that we were in, but you described how there's a, always a balance between uh, agora, discussion, compromise, uh, and uh, agon, conflict. But agon, it's the only thing I would add to what you said. Agon is not just conflict, it's also difference, distinction, being clear about distinctions. And so Russia is one thing, Europe is another thing. They're distinct. And the, the opposite of agon, which I think is a great, um, fault of thinking is is not to be able to make distinctions or to call things by their names or to apply labels. And this, uh, I think, is changing, but with difficulty, because, again, there's always the ghost of uh, the past and of Nazism. But what is happening is that people are realizing that if you don't change and move towards some of these elements, that uh, then Europe itself is at, is at risk, at danger. And I remain convinced that Europeans obviously have the resources, intellectual and emotional, to, uh, to operate this change when it becomes necessary. What strikes me as a Ukrainian in, in the Western Europe, every time I, I watch the discussions and read the books written by European intellectuals, is that the lack of faith, incredulity. So uh, I, would, I would say that this is the biggest disease of the current Western world, just uh, the pleasure of self-criticism and self-flagellation. 
but at the same time, I mean, you mentioned Makinda, that was an epoch, you remember Oswald Spengler wrote The Decline of the West, and we still see how after the horrible Second World War, Europe and the West regained, regenerated, and have provided a new meaning to the world, maybe, with the concept of welfare state, with the European integration. So do you think Europe will be able to overcome this incredulity and lack of faith in itself? Well, it, it is open. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm very clear and sure that Europe will only survive as European Union, a stronger federalized state. And if we stay even as divided as we are now, essentially with the lack of a political union, then the future of Europe will be rather traumatic and it will become the playground for, for other powers, which I think is a possibility. So the dialectic is, will the fear of this scenario be enough to create something different, a political union at the European level? But you are correct that there's obviously, um, we are at the last stages of a process of centuries of self-examination, of criticism, uh, which in Western Europe uh, was, was taken to extremes. One difference you do see in Ukraine is that it wasn't taken to extremes. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is very visible in a certain um, ability to trust. Uh, not God, I'm not sure if you, if you had that in mind uh, by faith, but trust the future, trust destiny. To, trust uh, yourself. Trust yourself, and 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 to uh, to jump and to leap into the abyss, and and trust that you'll be able to survive. Uh, not at all the attitude in Western Europe. Uh, I gave you the example that today the the Kerch Bridge was was bombed, and uh, I'm in Ukraine now, and I saw the reactions, um, which were essentially of seeing the moment as an important moment um, in the war. But I'm pretty sure in Western Europe, the reaction by everyone will have been what happens now. Not what happened, but what happens now in the future. So there's this permanent self-doubt. But the self-doubt, as you know very well, has philosophical origins. It was supposed to be a value. Some of these values were, were taken to unhealthy extremes. That's one way to look at it. And perhaps Ukraine can provide a corrective. But if we look at, at the European intellectual history, we have this idea of doubt, which comes primarily from the Baroque, Shakespeare, Descartes. Mm -hmm. uh, we should read Descartes as a Baroque philosopher. Mm -hmm. And then you have, uh, th then it's like a wave. Then you have the more systematic, dogmatic philosophy, uh, like of Leibniz or whatever. Then again, you have the epoch of doubt. Then again, the, uh, the epoch of 19th century was called an epoch of doctrine. So I, I do hope that this is a kind of a cycle that will lead us to a more self-confidence. Let's talk about other regions, China. Uh, do you think China is on Russia's side in this war, or is it kind of a neutral? Uh, it, it seems uh, obvious and relatively easy to decipher to me. Uh, China does not want to help the U.S. in any way, and in fact wants to make things more difficult for the U.S. Uh, it looked back in February that the way to do that uh, was um, obviously to express uh, some kind of, of, of support for Russia, uh, which never turned into very practical material support, because I think China is concerned that it will be dragged into a war that Russia cannot win. But in any case, the, the, the priority, I think, for decision makers in Beijing was, was not to help the U.S. and to allow the U.S. to 
to be dragged into what looked like could be a serious problem, and it can still become a serious problem for the U.S. The U.S. does have difficult choices to make. Um, if, um, if it cannot continue the current level of support or increase it, uh, um, Ukraine may, may suffer difficulties uh, next year. We all know that, also financial. Uh, if it extends support, that will create divisions inside the U.S., you ask me, how does China regard this? Well, they're they stepping back. And again, they don't want to help Russia particularly, but what they really focus on is not to help the U.S. in any way, even by accident. Can they be interested in Russia's defeat? Because that would mean that Russia will fall even more under Chinese influence. And uh, another thing which uh, interests me is that Russia is now trying to present itself to the whole, let's call it, anti-Western world. Of, of course, it's a simplification as a kind of a leader of this anti-Western world. And China might be jealous. I think that's possible. But sometimes, and I've, uh, I've defended that idea, um, but I think sometimes that that's more how geopolitical thinkers look at it and that practical politicians will be a bit more reserved that the idea that Russia will come under Chinese control is one of those processes that will take half a century. And Xi Jinping is concerned with the next five or ten years. Uh, he knows that the political resistance in Russia to Chinese control is strong. He probably believes, and I think with some justification, that we are not going to see a widespread collapse of Russia. Some can disagree here in Ukraine, but I remain skeptical about that. Um, I don't think Russia will break apart, um, and I don't think there will be a, a complete economic collapse. Um, so short of those scenarios, uh, I think Beijing will probably, I think that the, the political elites will probably be thinking in a slightly different way. They will be thinking that the U.S. had to deal with two main adversaries, two fronts essentially, and it's in the U.S.'s interest for Russia to become diminished. So I suspect uh, and I worry that, in fact, uh, if, if China has not intervened directly or materially so far, it could in the future. If Russia enters uh, a period of real trouble, that perhaps China's priority will be to prevent a collapse, actually. Because, by the way, you don't know what will come out of a collapse. Uh, it could, in fact, be a collapse that Europe and, and the U.S. would 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 use as a way to increase their influence in Russia. So I think what a more practically-minded politician leader in China would think is that a, a Russian crisis or collapse would primarily be in, in, in America's interest because they could then focus on China. As far as I can tell, this is how they're thinking. Do, they, do you think that China is just waiting, re, trying to repeat the experience of the United States in the two uh, world wars, just staying apart from a big conflict and then be eventual w winner out of this? Yes, uh, I think they, they do think that way. They think the future is on their side. Uh, they probably want to avoid making serious mistakes. Uh, that also leads me to think that they won't make any bold move on Taiwan. Because as far as I understand it, this does seem to be the psychology to rise through the top through uh, strong structural economic forces like the U.S. did. They are captured by this analogy with America's rise in the late 19th century. And perhaps to use uh, these conflicts uh, and, and staying out of them. Uh, so from this point of view, if this becomes... Uh, 
more active conflict between the West and Russia, I'm pretty sure that China would would stay on the sidelines and again, as you say, uh, probably attract uh, industrial change to China, become a place of stability uh, contrasted to to the conflict going on elsewhere. What is the role of India? I'm not sure India wants to be part of this bipolar world, which is led either by China or Russia. No, but they have their own ambitions, uh, which are justified. Um, I think uh, India has uh, all the all the potential to to become a superpower, and uh, I think that's also how they're thinking about this. So there's a big discussion going on trying to interpret India's position. And those who are more committed to this sense that this is a conflict between democracies and dictatorships tend to devalue India's position, think it is just a form of temporary pragmatism about oil prices. I think differently. I think that India is not part of the West, will never be part of the West. I, I tend to devalue the question of democracy to some extent because I think democracies can take many different shapes. There are Western democracies and there is Indian democracy um, and they have uh, fundamental differences. For example, hierarchy is very important in Indian democracy and it's not important in Western democracy. In fact, it's a, an anti-value. Uh, and so I think India is, is, is playing their own game and I have speculated without any evidence, I would confess, I've speculated that one reason India uh, is 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 not so worried about Russian imperialism is that perhaps India has, at, at the very least, India feels confident that it will not become the object of imperialism ambitions, given its size and power. And perhaps there's even some thinking that India could become a subject of imperialistic aspirations sometime this century. And so the fact that Russia is behaving like an expansionist power is not shocking for Indians. Uh, it's something that they can perhaps see in their own future, I'm, I'm sorry to say. What about Turkey? Uh, so Turkey is trying, am I right to say that Turkey is trying to become this kind of negotiator in this, in this big war as they interpret as, as well as Russia against the West? And in this case, it's interesting because they pushed away the, the negotiators, the mediators, which were under the 20, after the 2014, which were France and Germany. So they kind of are pushing France and Germany to decide that, look, you, you should be on the side of Ukraine. That's us already, Turkey, who is a, a, a main mediator. And I think France and Germany are very reluctant to accept this role, especially Germany. But they increasingly need to do this. I see Turkey as the perfect example of a hyper-rational, cerebral uh, approach to the conflict based on national self-interest. So I don't see China as an example of that. I don't see India as an example of that. I see them more captured by geopolitical ideas. I think Turkey is just doing a very basic calculus. They are fundamentally aligned with the Western position on the war when it comes to votes and UN and, and public statements because they know the West is still the dominant power and Turkey needs it. So I think that's a very cerebral calculation that they make. On the other hand, they see that Russia is weakened and by not breaking economic relations with Russia, you can gain a lot economically. You can even perhaps take advantage of Russia which I think Turkey is doing. 
And perhaps they can take advantage as well in Syria and other places. But you cannot take advantage of someone you have no contact with. So you don't break that contact. Uh, and also you don't want to be punished by Russia in areas where you're still vulnerable. So I see Turkey is making a, a, a very um, objective calculation about self-interest and kind of being successful because uh, the balancing act has worked. Uh, it, it has stayed out of Moscow's attention when it comes to punitive measures, on the contrary. And, um, but it hasn't paid a cost uh, uh, in, in its relations with the West. So in that sense, offers a different model. I think every major country has picked a strategy. So that's why it's fascinating. You can go from one to the other, and they all have um, decided differently on how to deal with this. Maybe my last question. You wrote a lot about this virtuality, the virtual world, which is like winning over the real world. Uh, in social networks, in, in imagination. I think we can also describe this war... Uh, Russia's war is a kind of a war against reality. And maybe they are suffering from this. Maybe they are victims of their own disinformation. Uh, so do you think this war increases our virtuality, the virtual world, or it's, it's maybe will be a re rehabilitation of the concept of reality? So this is a topic for the next book, actually, here announced for the first time. And I will try to, to look at different uh, events in the world today from the point of view of what I would call broadly understood the metaverse of virtual reality. And the Ukraine war will be one of them. Now, how do I make the, the two fit together? Uh, it's that idea of the two-level war. And the conflict that is happening at the higher level is essentially a conflict to rebuild and redesign the world order. And there's something virtual about that. Um, so there's a there's a conflict for territory, but that conflict for territory is happening under a certain framework, and the framework is being redesigned. Uh, questions about energy, uh, questions about uh, technology and technological access, questions about currency, what this war will mean for the future of the dollar, freezing of central bank reserves. So there's something very real happening in the battlefield, but one has to ask, what will be the decisive realm in the end? And it does seem to me uh, that the decisive realm will end up being the more virtual realm at the top because that's what's going to decide the fate of the Russian economy. And even the fact that the battlefield is being permanently redesigned, there's also something virtual about this. You might think this is a war like a war 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. But actually, in some respects, it is. The, no one, I guess, would have guessed that, that um, artillery would play such a fundamental role in a war in Europe again. But together with this very real element, there is this element that sometimes almost looks like science fiction, where Ukraine is changing before Russia's eyes. That Ukraine was something in February, and now Ukraine's army is something different. It makes me think a little bit of the Matrix, where the agents uh, will uh, sometimes uh, appear in the, in the guise of, of, of different people on the street, uh, and they can take their form. And here, it's again almost like you operate a trick of magic, and the Ukrainian army suddenly is, in some areas, better equipped than Russia's army. 
Now, this is, this is odd, right? Uh, it's not one army well-defined fighting another army well-defined. One of the armies is changing in an almost magical way. And, you know, for all the bravery of Ukraine soldiers, we also have to take into account that this process of transformation has been decisive. Um, and it will continue to happen. It's training, but also some equipment that Russia itself uh, doesn't seem to have access to. Um, so that's um, the way I'm looking at it. Um, I don't think, and it would have been implausible, that in a postmodern era like our own, that the war in Ukraine would be an exception and it would be the return to physical reality unvarnished. And I don't think it is. I still see a lot of virtuality in this, uh, in this war, if you look more carefully. Bruno Massage, thanks so much for joining this podcast. Thank you. This was an episode of Thinking in Dark Times, a podcast series by Ukraine World. In this episode, I spoke to Bruno Massage, a Portuguese politician and author, about Europe, Eurasia, power, Russia, China and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Thinking in Dark Times aims to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.